Hi, this is Darius Wolski, and you're listening to Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, apologies to our YouTube viewers, because uh, apparently I have done something goofy with our Sony setup, so I, I, I won't be doing the host wraps on the better camera this week, but next week I should hopefully have it all sorted out. So enjoy my webcam. Who's on the show today, Ben? I was going to oh, get, get right down to business. The amazing Darius Walski. Holy crap. I love every time I get to talk to him, I learn a million new things. And, uh, and he was here to talk about Napoleon. Nice. Um, and it's also always cool to hear about Ridley Scott and how he makes his movies because there's no one like Ridley Scott in the world. That is very true. And I, I'm really looking forward to Napoleon. I haven't seen it yet. So I'm totally behind you in this interview and everything else. I got to catch up. It's uh, it's quite an epic. I mean, uh, when you say epic, this is the kind of movie you're talking about. I mean, it's like just big scale everything. Nothing about this movie is small. I watched a really cool uh, video on YouTube all about how they turned 500 extras into 500,000, which was yeah. which is super cool for like the giant, huge army, you know, battle sequences. He, he talked about that. And he also talks about how, you know, in addition to all the highfalutin cameras they have, uh, they have like some uh, DJI uh, Osmo mini cameras thrown in, uh, you know, like they'll just stick it on a stuntman and say, eh, get some crazy shots of horses and they're in the film. And I'm like, did you did you do anything like any what razzmatazz did you do in post? He's like, yeah, they go by really fast. Yeah, they're on there for like, you know, a few frames, you know, yeah. half a second. So yeah. still. Still, super cool. I, I've been actually using my Osmo pocket camera that I bought from you probably more over the last six months than I have since I bought it because uh, I got it because I, I thought I'd use it to film my son doing stuff. And it turns out my son was kind of a two-hander. Like, <laughs> definitely didn't have time to fuss with my funky camera while running at full speed uh, to catch him and, and stop him from running away. So The joys of parenthood. Oof. Anyway. <laughs> And now, Close Focus. So let's get into our Close Focus. And uh, right now, like as we're recording these raps, the Emmys are still happening. We we were like, we can talk about the Emmys with half the relevant information, or we could talk about something that you just did, which was going to the CES show, which I've never been to. So I'm actually very interested to know what do we got to look forward to? Yeah, the Consumer Electronics Show is something interesting. It is becoming less and less about consumers, which uh, I think is a, a bit ironic. Considering it's like Comic Con, it, you know, Comic Con, not not exactly about comic book collectors anymore. Yeah, uh, CES is kind of like the chance for a lot of brands that maybe have a consumer component, but not necessarily entirely consumer based to show off what it is that they're doing. Now, it is still a very traditional place for electronics and computers and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So there's there like if you were a fanboy of computer fans and components, oh my goodness, you could walk around to your heart's content and look so at you're talking about fancy. Case. 
<laughs> Kay is the, the composer of our, all the music on this show. Uh, yeah. Yes, he's definitely a fanboy for that sort of thing. But I'll say that there's a demographic that's probably, I'm going to say, 15 years younger than Kay's that is going there with their uh, gimbals, their cameras, and they're shooting stuff for YouTube, talking about whatever the latest computer technology is. But then it's not just about computers. In fact, this year, I would say, is probably the biggest year I'd ever seen for consumer electronics based around health. Of about five years ago, it was a big deal about like wearables and Fitbits and that sort of thing. But uh, this year, it seemed like they took it to another level. It almost seemed like there was an entire health pavilion where there was all these people doing sorts of like various versions of uh, SoulCycle, different sorts of subscription services to to workout mm. programs, all kinds of different like smart workout gear that keeps track of your heart rate and does all kinds of other things. That was a big, big deal. But it wasn't just that. The AARP was actually there and they put on a panel. And the panel was really interesting to me, too, because the AARP, of course, the American Association of Retired People, they say that I'm you know, far too young to be receiving mailers <laughs> from them the second I turn 50. Go on. Yes. Uh, 49 and a half is supposedly when they start sending out. They, they, they start sending out the stuff. But they're really interesting. They're getting into apps and apps that will help increase brain health and, you know, mental longevity and mm. all kinds of things like that. And they did a really interesting panel, actually, with some improv performers who had done stuff with like uh, Freestyle Love Supreme. If you're familiar with them, they also, you know, is the same people who did uh, a lot of the same people who went on to do like uh, Hamilton that, mm. you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda was not there. But, you know, some of the people that he's associated with are, you know, came and did a panel and they did a little freestyle rap and they talked about how they're working on an app to teach people freestyle rap, which I thought was pretty cool. There was a um, wait. They, you know, they want to teach the AARP how to freestyle rap. That was essentially it. Yes. And they, oh, my God, I got to get my dad on that. You know, it was really. Yeah. Your dad who hates rap. So. <laughs> not, but, not, uh, the, not the generate. This is how, you know, though, because it's like our generation, you know, kind of was raised with rap. Some of us buy rap mm. and uh, my father's generation, not so much. So now AARP is aiming uh, rap squarely at its younger end of its customer base just because uh, we all take the Beastie Boys and, you know, Beastie Boys, all AARP age, except, you know, MCA, pour, pour one out for MCA. But. <sighs> yes. Uh, any, anyway, so it wasn't just like AARP. It was like a whole thing about consumer technology and cooking. And there was mm. all sorts of stuff about sustainability. So big themes for this year's Consumer Electronics Show, which I think is sort of a bellwether of all the stuff you're going to see. I'm not going to say force fed to you, no pun intended, in talking about the consumer electronics of food. But really, it's sort of the bellwether of what's happening in the next year. More and more stuff you're going to see. Vehicles were really big this year. Now, vehicles are big every year, uh, especially since electric vehicles have kind of come on the scene but I've never seen it like it was this year. Almost every major auto manufacturer was there. Lots of auto manufacturers, even people who you wouldn't necessarily think about for electric vehicles like Mercedes, they were there. Mm. And then also heavy equipment construction manufacturers. And I'm talking companies like Caterpillar was there with like a giant electric bulldozer. And mm. uh, Hyundai Heavy Machinery was there with a giant excavator and like video mock-ups, computer animations of how these electric heavy. Now, look, these are not consumer electronics. These are not consumer devices. That is a professional business tool that they're, you know, lots of delivery vans and stuff like that. They're, it's all, they're, every convention has like this serious mission creep. I mean, I brought up Comic-Con, but also... NAB, which we've both, I, I've been there with you several times, National Association of Broadcasters, like how much 
of NAB is about broadcasting anymore. You know, mm. it's, it's not what it's about. Like if I say National Association of Broadcasters, it sounds like a convention for local television, you know, your local Fox affiliates to show up. And no, it's about literally anything that has to do with the moving image or radio or anything. So CES is very much that. And I think for a lot of these companies, it's all about getting eyeballs and getting some press. And the yeah. press scene there is insane. Of course, I'm going as press. And there are thousands of press people who show up this. And it, it ra- runs the whole gamut from, you know, national major news media to like, you know, independent bloggers and, and whatnot. And it's very, very interesting to kind of see what comes out of like the, the five or six days that it goes on. Uh, and how that's going to kind of filter out into the world. There's a very interesting sort of startup section. And I did see some really, really clever startups, including a guy who um, was being featured there by the U.S. government. I thought it was really cool. The U.S. government was there and they chose a few people they thought were clever. And if you've been in a vehicle recently that gives you like lane departure warning and things like that, gives you all sorts of like, you know, assisted, you know, not quite driving for you, self-driving, but giving you a lot of like the the data to help you go like, whoa, hey, it it feels more like a running critic of my own driving like it's like (laughs) it's like having having a your own backseat driver that tells you you're doing it wrong all the time that that's pretty accurate well there there was a company there that uh, was a startup very clever couple of guys who figured out how to use your phone and you could put your phone on the dashboard and that way a car that didn't have this sort of technology it could then start through like the car's stereo or through your phone start giving you those sorts of like warnings like heads up on this that and a, a, a different different sounds if you were doing it and i was like that's really innovative it's really innovative for people who are driving around in you know let's say a classic car or even a car just made you know 20 years ago that does doesn't have that kind of stuff. Now they're putting in this sort of AI-assisted, you know, recognition of vehicles and hazards and things like that oh, to give cool. people a little heads up. So, kind kind of clever. A lot of people are mounting their their phones to their dash anyway, or to their wind their windshield. So this was sort of like a thing. So very interesting to see the way things are going. I go for a couple of different reasons. I have a couple of clients who, uh, you know, going to this is is relevant for our relationship and the things that we do. But for the most part, uh, I was there one day and I took in everything I possibly could in that day. It was a very efficient day. I was probably there like seven or eight hours. And uh, it's way overwhelming. The way that you really find out about, oh, you know, okay, so uh, OLED TVs are kind of like all the rage, but of course now there's a new version of uh, very, very high bright LEDs, all sorts of LEDs impregnated into things like curtains. Like if you want to have pixel curtains that you hang in your house that run video across it and stuff like that. And I don't. 200 bucks. There's like, there's lots of weird stuff out there now that's just sort of coming. Some of it is sort of like trashy, super forgettable, and I probably will never see them again. But one thing I expect to be a really big trend that will only continue and get grow bigger and bigger and bigger is something very popular in the prepper movement, which is whole home battery backups. So you have a power outage, boom, immediately your whole house switches over to batteries and it can charge via solar panels or charge via the grid or whatever it is. That's smart. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of that. A lot of that. What was the weirdest thing you saw there? The weirdest thing. There was several sort of like simulators, simulator rides, like, hey, you're, you're, you know, video games, video games were there. VR headsets were sort of there too. And so it was interesting that some companies weren't there. Like Apple wasn't there with their VR goggles thing, but yeah, there was a lot I, of people I talking about that. that. They would have been there. That's like probably the consumer electronic doodad that most people are at least morbidly interested in, even if they, uh, think it's not for them. 
I think Apple is sort of like they play their own game. Apple's like they have their whole Mac world thing. They don't feel like they have to be there with everybody Which else. Which is true. So, they, yeah. they, don't, they don't need to be out there with the hoi polloi. I get it. <laughs> anyway, it was an interesting time. There's a lot of stuff coming down the pike. There are some pretty good news sources out there like TechCrunch and uh, Gadget and places like that. And we'll put a link to something that does a good wrap up in the show notes. So if you want to find out more about what, you know, what big industry type of companies are going to be shoving to you consumers out there hoping to <laughs> hoping to uh, you know keep them busy by by building doodads and widgets and things of course all the major broadcast companies were there of course the sony's and the panasonic's and the canons and uh it's not really a show for the stuff that we do there but i gotta say sony invested a huge portion of their booth all about their sort of like professional filmmaking solutions so I don't know. I think they're tr- they're seeing that filmmaking is going more mainstream. So perhaps uh, it's the largest amount of booth space I've ever seen them dedicate to filmmaking. They had a whole like a 1957 Chevron con- convertible with uh, Venice 2 on a, on a dolly and a couple of virtual stage walls. Virtual production was there a little bit, but not like it is at other things. It was it was an interesting, interesting show, though. And uh, yeah, get the full wrap up at Cam Noir. You can find a link from there to go check out some of the stuff. Excellent. Excellent. Well, shall we get to our interview with uh, Darius Wolski? Let's do it. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Congratulations about Napoleon. Uh, it's it's really quite a, it's just an insane accomplishment. It's so huge. I almost don't know where to start, but you've been working with Ridley Scott for several projects now. And I just wonder when you get into uh, into a collaboration with a director like you have with Ridley Scott, how does he spring this on you? How does he call you up and say, "Hey, you know, uh, my next project is going to be <laughs> one of the most sweeping epics of the last twenty years"? Let's. Well, let's, he doesn't let's say that. He's way more low key about it. Yeah, all he does <laughs> is uh, on the last day of Gucci, he comes up to me and says. You know, in Rome, we're so close to Malta. Should we just hop on the plane and look at the locations? I said, for what? For Napoleon. That's oh, no. How now. <laughs> <laughs> That's how that happened, you know. So it wasn't, let's make a big epic. It's just, and it was quite nice because Malta, which is like a big part of the film, it was very special for him because that's where he shot original Gladiator. So yeah. he actually kind of revisited all the sets that uh, were very familiar to him and Arthur Max, who was a production designer. I wasn't part of it, but so I heard a lot of Gladiator stories. You know. Well, and it did It did kind of have a, th- there were visual cues about it. Maybe it's just because it was Malta. There were some things about it that felt a little Gladiator-ish. Like, like one of the things that struck me was the battle scenes in the snow. And, uh, you know, Gladiator kind of opens up with a big battle scene in snow, and you have a lot of battle scenes in a lot of snow. <laughs> that's but actually that's another yeah it's quite funny because the very top of the Austerlitz battle that's you referring to the snowy battle yeah. uh, was actually exactly when he shot Gladiator 2 opening scene for Gladiator yeah. is that that's cup. actually where they shot Gladiator that's exactly where they shot because Gladiator, when I was yeah. watching that scene I was thinking about that scene from Gladiator the first row of art- artillery, initial cavalry coming down a hill, that's all location where he did Gladiator. Oh, crazy. Except, you know, his over his shoulder, when you look to the forest, which is from that location, the distance is basically matted in from another location. Because we just, there was just, the scale was not big enough, you know. 
it was good enough for Gladiator, but it wasn't good enough for Austria's <laughs> So ba- basically, what the first row of art- artillery, initial cavalry coming down a hill, that's all location where he did Gladiator. Oh, crazy. But the minute they go down to the flats, we just we just could not find a right place for that because it has to be a frozen lake, has to be a village. Yeah. And every lake has always trees around it. We, we went on looking for places even outside England. Wow. And then we just create this little island when he's still on the donkey, you know, incognito, scoping the whole thing. We built a camp, an Austro-Prussian and Russian camp. And of course, when you look at the original footage, you know, we just snowed it as much as we could. So there was everything had to be filled up digitally because the shots were so big. It was yeah, just impossible. Yeah. We had, what did we have? We had 200 horses and 300, 400 extras. So when you go that wide, it's just nothing. Well, Considering that, that no, those battles were, historically, they were like 20, 30,000 people. Ugh, that's insane. It's just hard to imagine. It's, yeah, oh, I mean, and, and I feel like you help us imagine it and you kind of put us right right there. But let's like back way up and just kind of talk about like, what was the your process for figuring out the visual approach to this film, how you're going to light it. A lot of it looks like natural light. I have no idea what the actual balance of natural light versus movie lighting was, uh, but it feels so natural and so like, it, it, you know, it, it has a Barry Lyndon-ish feel inside and outside it feels very natural. But like f- for your approach to lighting, your approach to lensing, your approach to the whole thing, it's refreshing in a way to see that an epic like this is not being done like, hey, let's just shoot it all on a green screen and fill it 100% of it in later. Let's build a lot of it you know let's build as much as can be done but like where do you even start when you look at something like this uh you know you start looking at references which thank god there's a lot of them because there's a lot of paintings from the era and then there's a lot of also painting from the era after because you know there was a whole huge mythology about him so and and a lot of it's a lot of it's accurate a lot of it's not accurate (laughs) So yeah. when you start looking at the historical books, I mean, it's just as many versions of, of Napoleon as you can imagine. So that's what's that's what we're not trying to make a historical film. But okay, cinematically, you just load yourself with as many references as possible, and uh, you spend a lot of time with with Arthur Max production designer because he's doing tremendous research too. So it's a combination of two things. It's a combination of brainstorming as much as we can and then you have the historical consultants then you have the experts on the, on the warfare and then you have a director of course then you have a scriptwriter oh, so all these people are constantly discussing during the prep and the hardest thing when you do this stuff just forget about how you're going to photograph it it's just to understand it once you understand it that everything falls in place it's not like you just I mean, inventing. It seems up. like a lot to understand, like the, like the no, minor, particular, but, but important details of a giant battle. I have to give it to Ridley that you know that you can see a lot of battles in a lot of action movies these days, and just people just kill each other, or whatever. This big explosion. There is a logic to every battle because the movie is that he was a brilliant strategist. So yeah. there is always understanding why he's doing this, why they're doing this, when you know. So that was the most important thing and really spent a lot of time listening to historians and listening to the war strategies. And then we applied it to our mock-ups of the, of the battlefield and then just we had a plan. It's a lot of brainstorming and then once you have all the events, 
you just put the cameras in the best places possible. It's kind of, it's, you know, it's like, I call it like shooting a rock concert, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you have an event. I mean, rock concerts are easier because they're all on the stage. And yeah, yeah, you're on a, you're, it's easier. You're but, on a you know, frozen lake again, or you, you look like up, you're on a frozen you know, lake. 11 cameras and, and 11 and, cameras. But when you do concerts, you still have 11 cameras too. I guess that's true. Uh, I mean, ask Taylor Swift. I don't know. <laughs> how, like, how so, many did you have? Eleven cameras, or how many cameras? Like, yeah. that was how many you were rocking on on those battle scenes. To be yeah, eleven plus a drone. Plus, we also had like a, a very small digital camera that we put on a little stick with a little. Oh, is it the uh, the DJI Mini or whatever? Here we go. You're better than I am. I, I own one of those. <laughs> I use it to to film my son's soccer games. So what we do, we just put it on the on a stick and we give it to one of the stunt guys on the horses. And that's the best way. You just send them in the middle of the battle and you have this, you don't even choreograph it, but you always get amazing footage because he's in the middle of, of the whole event. And uh, because, you know, anytime you try to get close with the ca big cameras with horses, you spook them, you know. And, yeah, yeah. And this way, you, this way you can shoot this sim simultaneously when you're shooting all the other stuff, you know. So that was a very helpful. So you all those big close up of hoofs or horses, and you know. Now I got to go rewatch it and be like, and see if I can spot those shots. Do you, uh, not to get overly technical, but do you have to do a lot of digital razzmatazz to DJI mini footage to make it intercut with the other stuff? It's pretty amazing. It's pretty yeah. amazing those cameras, and and also you know it's not like one of those cerebral shots. You know, it's just it's about a couple seconds. It's just yeah. and it's usually so dramatic because it's hoops, it's 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 the breeze and stuff. You know, so you completely get away with it. I mean, back in the day, people used to put you know sixteen mil small camera footage and intercut it with thirty five. Yeah, and yeah. We used to get away with that too. You know, as long as it's quick and, and you know. Interesting. Interesting. Well, like I've I've seen interviews with Ridley Scott where he basically said that it would take I forget exactly the time frame, but he's like it would take some most directors eight weeks to do this battle scene, and I figured out how to do it in ten days or something like that. Like, are these some of the tricks that that we're talking about? I I, I don't know if I'm getting his time frame right. I could be misquoted. No, you, you yeah, but he loves to brag about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, okay, we did a movie in 60 days, let's make it in 50. Like, uh, no, it's, you know, he has tremendous experience, experience and he's done so many battles, you know, and yeah. he really understands what matters, what doesn't. And he hires the best people. We had the best, best horse people, I think, in the world. We had, you know, the best VFX people, best production designer. I mean, the camera guys were amazing, you know, so it's just all these people are so used to working that, on that scale. But how does it work from your point of view? Because I can't imagine being cognizant of what's going on on 11 different cameras at the same time. Are you in Video Village watching 11 different feeds and saying, yep. hey, camera six, uh, widen up a little bit. Camera nine, pan to the left a little bit. Well, it's, at, at that stage, there's no time to say widen up because you just go for it. And you, you trust operators' instincts. You know, when it comes to go a little wider, a little tighter, you know, when we do dramatic scenes, that's what we do. But you just basically explain to operator what's happening. They understand and they're experienced enough. And, and even if they improvise themselves, if they take an initiative, it's great. Why not? What, I mean, what about the lighting and the, and the positioning of the lighting when you're choosing? Lighting is tricky. Lighting was tricky. So, I mean, it's England. That's not number one. So yeah. <laughs> lighting is mostly cloudy. So we were pretty much lucky because it was, we were shooting like early spring. And if there's a bit of sun comes up, you still roll because it's just, you know, with the smoke and all the effects and stuff, you, 
you got away with it. And so we shot everything, SoundCloud, SoundCloud, mix it up. And the only thing I did, maybe I did a couple close-ups with Joaquin. So we had an option to cut with him in the sound and without the sound, you know, so you oh. kind of blend together. It's basically embracing it. You know, you just can't, you cannot control, you know, it's, you just have to embrace it and and find the best angles for that. You know, if if, if image is good looking, nobody's going to question if it matches with the previous shot. No, it's interesting. If there's two, if there's two boring shots, oh my God, this is sound, this is sound. <laughs> so, mean, well, it's, 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 it's harder to get away with that in like a dialogue scene or something like that where you're... Yeah, of course, but you know, the dialogue scene, that's you, you, you do something else, then you cover it. And, yeah, you, yeah. Then, but in a place like this, you just completely embrace it. I believe that as long as next shot is more interesting than the previous one, <laughs> that's what I always try to explain to script people, you know, to try to keep continuing. Are they, uh, are they pulling their hair out <laughs> about the... No, actually, I mean, Ridley script person is she's she's an absolute genius. So she she totally understands what matters, what doesn't. You know, I I mean, it's like what you're saying reminds me a lot of. I remember reading the American Cinematographer article about Gladiator, and when they were filming that opening battle scene, sometimes it's snowing, sometimes it wasn't. And I remember reading that, being like, "Why is it that it works? (laughs) Why why is it that it doesn't jump out at anybody? Because you know, like you know, because it's exciting. Yeah." (laughs) <laughs> and you believe it, and you know, and in real life, like if sun comes out, sun goes, yeah. sun comes out, sun goes in the cloud. We can have a conversation, you know, like it happens all the time. That's interesting, though. That's just interesting that because you know the one thing that you always hear about Ridley Scott is you know how meticulous and specific he is, and so it's, oh no, he is, he, he is, yeah. he is, he is. But, but at the same time, but that, but that, like you don't often think about meticulous and specific and infinitely flexible as. You know, like those are almost opposites. But I guess, you know, somebody who's been doing this as long as he's been doing this just knows instinctively what will work in the moment and is willing to kind of roll with, like you were saying, like jazz. And also, and he's he's not afraid to take chances. Mm-hmm. And that's what's remarkable about him, because I always took chances. Sometimes, you know, I paid dearly for it <laughs> in the beginning of my career, uh, because you always push the envelope. You always try to see, you know, go further. And with him, it's just normal. This is like a, this is a normal behavior that you, you know. Just pushing the envelope every, everywhere? Yeah. And that's why, that's why I see, I enjoy working with him. We did nine movies together. Yeah. Very special. Nine movies. Because, you know, that's a, that's a huge other, body Other work. people are just, are just, are just nervous and they're nervous and they're, they're second guessing themselves and, and, and they shoot alternatives and this, and, you know. Does, does he still storyboard everything? Yeah. I mean, like yeah. his his boards and James Cameron's boards look as good as any storyboard artist that I've ever seen. Like the stuff of, of his that I've seen just looks amazing. For him, is for him is almost process of thinking. Yeah, you know, he does storyboards like with the first script already. So you get to the point that that he has to redraw stuff because things have changed. Oh wow! Or he sees the location, and we look at him. So it doesn't look like. And he says, I haven't seen location. I just draw it in South of France at home. So then he he draws his early storyboards. It's just this way of thinking, you know, how he's going to stage scenes. Then locations come in. So if it kind of works with locations, it's great. If it doesn't, he just re- redraws it. Or he has a new idea. Now he can draw while we're setting up big stunts. He's like in, in, in our trailer. He's just with a little flashlight drawing something. And she shows me something. Oh, what is it? Oh, that's for tomorrow. Uh. So, his brain constantly works, constantly. So every minute, like if this, if, you know, if it takes time to load up the cannons, he's gonna just draw storyboards for tomorrow. 
Oh, that's cool. That's really cool, though, because, you know, when you think about it, it's it's like he's making the movie for the second or third time when you're actually making the movie. He's already, That's why he could be flexible, because he's already thought through the scene so many times that he knows what he needs from it. I mean, I was with him on location, big, big, big location, big set on the other movie. And I'm getting in the car and he is in his Range Rover and we're just kind of pulling out. And I see him stopping his Range Rover and he's like waving at me. So I go to him. And he looked at his reverse camera from the Range Rover. With yeah. his reverse. I mean, look at that. That's a great shot. We should do it tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how constantly he's thinking, which, which is incredible, you know. That's amazing. When he was leaving the set, he saw this in, in the rear view or whatever camera. That's crazy. But that's just, that's just a great part of working with him, you know. So uh, we only have about 10 more minutes. I want to talk about, about the lighting because I feel like the lighting, and I'm, I guess I'm talking about in the character scenes, the dramatic scenes, yeah. at once looks completely natural, like the lighting that would have existed at the time. Like, I, I, it, it feels very authentic. And also it evokes, you know, like I went back and looked at a bunch of portraits of Napoleon, and I'm assuming that you're using some of those as reference, but I feel like you're almost in a way staging some of those, you know, historical yeah. paintings. It's, it's funny because yeah. I was actually thinking like, if Napoleon had lived 20 years longer, we'd probably have a picture of him, but we don't. We have tons of paintings. Yeah, the paintings were very, very instrumental. Yeah, and of course we quoted a few of them. You know, we've quoted, you know, the, the coronation is the Spanish yeah. David Spain. So we kind of quoted pretty much exactly, which wasn't actually naturalistic, right? Because it, it was just front lit with the follow up with like a really glow over Napoleon and everyone was a little bit in the shadow. And I just did it like a painting. Yeah. Which wasn't those painters, neoclassical painters were not like Rembrandt or, 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 or Vermeer, that they were just discovering the Caravaggio, they were looking at light. They were just very commercial. They were like, they were like propaganda paintings. So the, there was yeah. always a beautiful light on, on the main character. So, so that's what we did in Coronation. We did, I did a few times. During the so it was a combination of being super naturalistic and that kind of propaganda, just perfect light on, on, on the main character. And, uh, so that, that was interesting. Yeah. Were there any, uh, References to like a Barry Lyndon kind of a style lighting for the oh my god! Interiors. I mean, listen, the Barry Lyndon was a revolutionary movie. Yeah. at the time, didn't get good reviews from critics, of course. Uh, hardly anybody saw it, but it's a masterpiece. And, yeah. uh, and at that time, technologically, it was incredible that he shot everything with candles. You know? Well, didn't he get like a lens from NASA that he, that was one like, lens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, it was point seven. Yeah. 35 mil. It's one lens. He shot all the interiors with one lens. Yeah. That's so crazy. And, and he shot super simply. The whole Barry Lyndon is like wide shot, push in, close up, close up. That's it. Yeah. And outside was zoom out, zoom in, close up, close up, which is very stagey. And we were trying to, inside we were trying to do that too, just very simple, big wide shot, couple close ups, just nothing fancy. But technology is 10 times better. I mean, I've shot movies with candles, you know, like even film, this is digital, even film stock was twice as fast as with Barry Lyndon had. Yeah. So I, I shot with candles and pirates already. So, you know, this whole thing about living up to, to Kubrick, it's been in my brain for years. Well, especially since Kubrick, you know, famously tried to make a Napoleon biopic. And yeah. uh, it's it's always crazy to think about like what that would have been like, how 
How you yeah. know? And obviously, there are yeah. multiple Napoleon. There was a, a famous silent movie, uh, Napoleon biopics. So. Avogans, yeah, yeah, Avogans, yeah, brilliant. I, I I was lucky to see it actually in Radio City Musical with Francis Ford Coppola's father conducting orchestra. What? I that, did. I did. That's see crazy. It. <laughs> no, it's a black and white film. It's a totally different thing. But there was a scene. There's a snowball scene in Avogans movie that we had in the script. But then we talked to historians and we found out that this was just only made up story. That wasn't true. Oh, man. But hey, whatever. I mean, anytime more you start getting into this stuff, you can, yeah. Because there's so much mythology around him. And, and so then everybody, like, you, French have their own concept of Napoleon. English have their own concept of Napoleon. I do wonder what, what the French think about an English director making a Napoleon movie. Well, there was a lot of a uh, lot of controversy around it. But uh -huh. you, I went to French premiere in Paris, and it was extremely respectful. I mean, yeah. they did this beautiful piece with Ridley, Joachim, and, and then later with me, they took me to the, the Museum of, of Army which is incredible and there's a whole floor devoted to napoleon so you just walk in you, you basically look at the, the paintings that we were trying to rip off. oh my god <laughs> and uh, it was quite quite moving that's awesome so they were, they were very respectful well that's great okay so i know it's time for you to get going you know you've been on the show before but for anyone listening who hasn't heard the other show uh is, besides going to see all your movies which are you know legion what's the best way to find you online are you on instagram or any of those things i'm on instagram yeah darius wolski official yeah excellent excellent so people should go check that out thank you so much for coming back on the show congratulations on uh napoleon and i look forward to having you back whenever you want to come back Hey, thank you so much. Anytime. All right, so that was Darius Wolski. Uh, Darius, thank you again, as always, for coming on the show. It's always great to talk to you. Uh, to talk to a living legend. Holy crap. I, I never take it for granted how awesome it is to be able to talk to somebody like Darius Wolski about making something like Napoleon. My God. It doesn't get any more epic than that. So Napoleon is already on VOD right now, and you can get it on Apple TV+. Plus. I think you can also get it on Amazon Prime. Definitely check it out. And now, short ends. All right, Ben. So it is time for our short ends. It's our pet obsession of the week. Uh, what are you all about? What are you What are you into these days? Okay, so before I get into my pet obsession, I'm going to do something that sounds like an ad, but it's not an ad because they're not paying us anything for this. Okay. But uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of scriptation. Never and heard I, of it. I got so scriptation <laughs> for for those of you who who haven't heard of it. Uh, scriptation is a service that enables. It's a PDF reader that allows you to do everything you could possibly imagine doing in pre-production with a freaking PDF. So you can bring in your script, you can mark it up, you can note it up, you can create facing pages, you can draw diagrams, you can bring in diagrams, you can do multiple layers. So you could have like a wardrobe thing and a visual reference layer and a composer layer, and you can give it to your script supervisor and your script supervisor could uh, do all your all your script supervision in scriptation if you want. It's, it's a, an amazing, flexible file. And the really cool thing about it is that when you get new drafts of the script, you basically just apply all your notes to those and it does it for you like magic. Like wow. all the time that I have spent rewriting notes in a script, gone. It's really great. Works on, I believe, every platform. So anyway, I don't think they did this because I have talked about them on the podcast. In fact, I heard about them talking to, I believe it was Byron Warner on this podcast because mm. uh, he was a big fan. But they reached out to me and they, were, uh, they sent me an email months ago and they're like, hey, can we get your uh, address? You know, we, we as a user of Scriptation, we just wanted to send you a, a little gift. 
And I assumed it was going to be a card or something like that. Hmm. Check out what Scriptation sent me. They sent you a hydro flask, a reusable water bottle of some sort. Yeah, it's really nice. And it's got like a little little wood cap thing and it's got their logo. And they, you, So you think they sent this to all their users? I mean, I can't imagine they did because, like, it had to cost a bunch, but I also don't think that they sent it to me because of the podcast. Maybe they did. I don't know. But I just wanted to thank Scriptation. Again, they are not paying us. They, they have paid me in a, in they, a they, reusable... They, they bribed you with a water bottle. They probably also, sent, them, yeah, they also probably. sent me a baseball cap. I don't really wear baseball caps, but uh, mm. I, I got a, a Scriptation baseball cap. Um, anyway, I, I, I just think the world of Scriptation, I thought that, that was very nice. This, this is not my short end. No, I thought this was your short end. <laughs> no. Your obsession is the water bottle that you got no. from the app that you love. No, no. Uh, I just thought it was really cool. Uh, okay. No, here is the big news drop. And uh, my friend Mike Manello texted me about this and it was like, oh shit, it's on. Mm. Uh, I've probably talked about it on the podcast before. Jerry Lewis in 1972, I believe, made a very controversial film called The Day the Clown Cried. Are you familiar with this film? I'm not. So Jerry Lewis directed this movie in which he plays a clown in the Holocaust who brings children into the gas chambers. Oh, wow. Okay. And he, and he made this movie in the, ni- in the early 70s. And then uh, it has never been released. Oh, wow. And okay. he supposedly, if you ever had dinner at his house, he'd make you watch it. He thought it was a masterpiece. And when Life is Beautiful blew up at the Oscars, he was like, that's my my movie should be doing that. That I deserve that. And apparently was very angry. Later in life, he claimed that it was bad work and that he was never going to release it. Mm. But then, you know, Jerry Lewis uh, died. I don't know. I, I think it was like three or four years ago. Oh, he died in 2017. He basically made a deal that the movie couldn't be screened publicly until seven years after he died. So do the math, and basically the Library of Congress supposedly is going to have a a potential screening, or there might be many screenings, like I can imagine Alamo, or or excuse me, uh, Drafthouse Films getting on this bandwagon and doing a wide release. There's much curiosity and interest in this film because, you know, it was uh, not exactly Jerry Lewis operating at the top of his powers. I think that, you know, it's like end of the 60s. He was kind of the, the kind of muggy shtick that he was doing was going out of style. And then he makes this very serious Holocaust movie, except there are things about it that look really unserious, like his character's name is Helmet Dork. Hmm. And okay. uh, it seems like a movie that might weirdly trivialize the Holocaust. There's You can find on uh, online, I, I heard it on YouTube, an interview that Harry Shearer did with Howard Stern. Harry Shearer has seen the film, mm. and he and he basically describes it as like a perfect object. But it's like it's great, it's jaw dropping, and for all the wrong reasons. Oh no! And, and I can't believe you've never heard of it. Um, no, it's, I, I, Jerry Lewis is kind of like a big black hole for me. I I don't think I've ever seen an entire Jerry Lewis movie. Ever. Not even not even the King of Comedy. Never seen it. You've never seen the King. Okay, the King of Comedy is not a Jerry Lewis movie. It's a Martin Scorsese movie. Never but, seen it. Oh, the King of Comedy is so great. But Jerry Lewis was not allowed in my house growing up. It was just was really? not a thing. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like nobody in, that, in my family liked Jerry Lewis. Okay, so. so 
not to get too personal, but my father was a professional clown. I think I've uh-huh. told you this. He you wasn't have. just he wasn't just a clown. He was no, no. Bozo, Bozo he the was clown. He was the clown. Yeah. In in Miami and South Florida, and then in Orlando around the time I was born, and. I guess they had some kind of convention of either bozos or people who do kids programming in the 70s in Vegas. And he went out and met Jerry Lewis and and uh, tells a great story about how Jerry Lewis was going down and just shaking hands, shaking hands and not really talking to anyone. And as soon as he got his hand on Jerry Lewis's on his hand, he just didn't let him go and tried to make a bit out of it. And Jerry Lewis was like, mugging and trying to make a joke out of it and then getting in his face and being like, let go of my hand. <laughs> Jerry Lewis does not sound like a pleasant person, yeah. um, which makes sort of the schadenfreude of his most serious and also most pretentious directing effort a little satisfying. Although it should be noted that like we have Jerry Lewis to thank for video assist. He like came up That's with true. video assist. Yeah, that was, that was he's credited with that invention. So yeah, I mean, yeah. like, you know, love him or hate him, he was an auteur of some standing, but like this movie is kind of one of those, you know, murmured about off the rails, crazy pants movies that per- I'm not alone, but I've personally wanted to see this movie. I-, I heard about it when I was in film school, I think. So, you know, like I've been hearing about this movie for 30 years. So and are there any screenings scheduled? When are you going to get to see this? Supposedly they're saying in June, although the Library of Congress is now disputing reports, and I saw this on IndieWire, that Jerry Lewis's movie will screen in June in full. They're saying portions of the film will be made available to scholars. What? I don't know. Uh, for research purposes. But uh, the screening's impossible because the Library of Congress does not have a complete cut of the film. So here's to hope. Supposedly he had a cut in his vault. Harry Shearer claimed that he saw it on three-quarter inch. I'll watch it on three-quarter inch. I'm good with that. Whatever we got. And for uh, our younger listeners, three-quarter inch is videotape. Standard yeah. definition. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very, very old videotape that, you know, was kind of on the way out before you and I even had careers. And uh, it was a half-inch magnetic tape that actually was sort of the forerunner to VHS. So there you go. There, There's all the details you ever need to know about three-quarter inch. Anyway, so, so Ben, maybe you'll get to see it. Maybe you won't but you're obsessed with the tantalizing possibility of getting to sit down to watch the disputed Jerry Lewis, by his own account, masterpiece. Uh, Yeah, yeah, the very controversial. I mean, there's just something also just about like a lost film. Like if you found out that London After Midnight, a print had turned up, I would be all over seeing it. But this even more so in a way, because it sounds... um, how do I say this nicely? There is no nice way to say it. It sounds kind of borderline offensive. And I think uh, that'll be fun. <laughs> there's people who will probably take offense. And there's people who will enjoy watching other people take offense from this movie. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so yeah. enough about the day the clown cried. Not there's never <laughs> enough about the day the clown cried. But uh, let's. Uh, what, what is your pet obsession this week? Boy, it's it's nowhere near as interesting as yours. Uh, I, watched I told the, you mine was great. It was pretty great. Uh, so I, I can't follow that. I'm, I'm not going to try. Uh, I'll just say goodnight. No, uh, my, my short end was uh, something I watched last night and really enjoyed, and I'm looking forward to it, but I'm not sure it's going to be able to maintain it. I watched You Are What You Eat, a twin experiment. I'm sort hmm. of a science nerd. This is a this so is about a twins who thing. eat each other? Mm, that would be that would be something, but no, this Twin is a cannibals. This I'm is in. a documentary about a Stanford study where they use twins and they give them different diets and they measure the results, which isn't a usual thing. Now, before you think that they gave one 
twin a healthy diet and one twin a very unhealthy diet. That's not what they did. They chose two healthy diets, but they wanted to see if dairy and meat, basically uh, a huge part of an omnivore diet. I'm an omnivore. I eat dairy. I eat meat along with with everything else uh, versus a vegan diet. And they got these twins and it's it was pretty fun to watch them go like, please oh, tell yeah. me the vegan was like sickly and pale by the end and the and the omnivore was way healthier. I, I haven't got it through the whole thing. It's a uh. multi-part series. So as of episode one, you know, it's tantalizing. I can't wait to see what happens, but they do full body scans. They do all this blood work. They're making them poop into like some sort of cup like nine times they're checking their microbiome they're checking their their no, brain activity you. they're doing all this stuff and they're doing it uh for for science which i think is pretty cool that they're using twins essentially they're doing a very rigorous study to figure out if over eight, eight weeks there's an impact and i i'm assuming there must be otherwise there's not much of a, a show but we'll see i'm looking forward now to, to diving in and watching the rest of it it's called you are what you eat a twin experiment and at least episode one starts off really strong and so i'm gonna watch the rest it's on Netflix. It's a Netflix series. So if you are a Netflix person with, you know, there's only like 200 million in the world, uh, you can give it a try uh, and see if you see if you like it. Very cool. Very cool. So, Ben, uh, I think that just about does it for this episode. Uh, where can people track you down if they want to find you? Uh, you can find me at benrock.com. I, somebody sent me a message through benrock.com just today, which doesn't happen often, but feel free to send me a message. I don't care. I'll get it. It'll just be me. I have no people, but you can go there. You can check out my reel. I, I recently put up a bunch of corporate work, even though like I want to talk about all this sexy creative stuff I do. Corporate work is extremely satisfying and I, I, I love doing it and I love working with corporate clients. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? Uh, I usually say LinkedIn, but you can also find me over at Instagram. I'm at Ilya Friedman over there. And uh, a couple people have reached out to me recently via Instagram. I know it's all the kids who are doing it these days, but the people were not that Instagram, young. So Instagram I, is like, I think, more millennials. And then like the Gen Z is more TikTok. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And millennials, true. millennials sounds young. But they're not that their, young anymore. They're in their forties now. Yeah. yeah, late thirties. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's yeah. a thing. Yeah, I mean, anyway. like we're older, but you know, <laughs> yeah, us poor Gen Xers, we're us old. Poor Gen Xers with our far superior music to every other generation. Let no one say otherwise. By evidence, the fact that when you go places, people of every generation are listening to Gen X music. You know, you know ding. what's weird is going through a grocery store and hearing the Cure. Oh yeah, that's odd. That, I think it's pretty funny when you're in a dressing room and they're playing like, you know, Yaz yeah. <laughs> or Yazoo, as they are also known. So anyway. I, I just learned something about Yaz that I never knew. Anyway, so, Ben, uh, who do we have to thank this week? Who who helped make this show possible? I mean, it's the same, uh, same murderers, three people, <laughs> same murderers row of awesome people. I mean, honestly, Ben Katz probably copy paste. But first off, Alana Cody, who uh, works her ass off getting us all these great interviews and it's a big deal to me to get to talk to someone like Darius Walski. I mean, like, I just admire that that man's work. He's exactly the kind of person that made both of us want to start this podcast in the first place. So thank you, Alana. I'd like to thank Ben Katz, who uh, this uh, I'm we're sparing him the hassle of having to stitch together 27 different files off of my Sony camera uh, in exchange for this slightly uh, less high quality image that you're looking at right now. But uh, Ben does an amazing job editing us every week. And last but never least, a big shout out and thanks to Kaze Alatracci, our uh, composer. And we need to actually get in and use some of his new tracks because he gave us a bunch of new tracks. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with you about that because uh, I want to I want to get you get your feedback and hear which ones uh, you're into. 
well, maybe we can have that chat while you're in town because you're in town for a few days. I'm in. Maybe even tomorrow if you're around. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> All right, Ben. I think that's just going to do it for us. Uh, you want to take us out? I, I uh, Yeah. Th- thanks for tuning in. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.